Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Codenames, deception, and gadgets. It might seem like something out of the movies, but these are just some of the essential components of being a spy. Every week, the ParCast Network's original show, Espionage, explores this high-stakes world and analyzes the missions behind the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations to the public eye. Find out the real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. Most spies don't start out like James Bond and Ethan Hunt. They are ordinary, forgettable people, which makes them all the more dangerous. So what does it really take to be a spy? Search for and subscribe to Espionage wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, search Espionage or visit parcast.com slash espionage to listen now. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. I am excited to announce that Misconduct is going to be attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th in Chicago. Chicago is one of my absolute favorite cities, so come hang out with me and a bunch of other really great podcasts. You're really not going to want to miss this. Go to the website tcpf2019.com to find information about tickets and the event. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention misconduct on the ticket registration survey. I will also be in Manchester on July 6th and London on July 7th and 8th for the Gen Y They Walk Among Us meetups. I spoke with Rosie from They Walk Among Us and the events are completely sold out. So I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody there. Let me know if you plan on being at the Chicago Festival or at any of the UK meetups because I would love to meet any misconduct listeners who attend. And finally, I wanted to let you know that I'll be taking a couple weeks off in May. When I decided to continue with Misconduct, I was concerned about taking on the entire podcast as a solo venture. Because of that, I built in a mini break for myself to work on episodes without the pressure of a release deadline. So because of that, I will be releasing episodes on April 18th and May 2nd, and then I will be taking May 16th and May 30th off. And I'll be returning with new episodes on June 6th. Thank you guys so much for understanding. And with that, let's get into the episode. 
Judith Gale Williamson was born in Albany, California in 1945. She was the only child of Clara and Stanley Williamson, and the three lived in a modest house in Albany, a small town just to the north of Berkeley along the San Francisco Bay. Clara was a housewife, and Stanley worked as an electrical engineer on nearby Mare Island. Judith graduated from Albany High School in 1962. She was a good student and reported to be thoughtful and conscientious by those who knew her. In fact, in the wake of her disappearance, people described her as a dream daughter. After graduating from Albany High School, she enrolled at nearby UC Berkeley to study pre-med with the hopes of becoming a doctor. She had planned to become a doctor since she was 12 years old, and enrolling at UC Berkeley was the first step in making her dream a reality. October 29, 1963 was a normal day for the Williamson family. It was also a normal day for Albany in October. It was cloudy, windy, and almost raining off and on all day. Judy got ready for school and said goodbye to her parents around 7 a.m. She was wearing a black sweater and a white blouse with a green and black plaid skirt. She was also wearing a gold watch and a gold ring and had a beige book bag full of textbooks. Right before she left, she also threw her white monogrammed umbrella into her bag in the event that it finally decided to rain. On the way out the door, her father Stanley gave her two letters to drop into the mailbox on the way to her bus stop on San Pablo Avenue. Investigators would later ascertain that she did make it to the mailbox because days after she walked out the front door, the letters Stanley gave to her were delivered to their addresses. The walk from the Williamson house to the bus stop was only three short blocks. This bus line was one of the main bus lines to UC Berkeley, so Judy was well known to other regulars on the route as well as the bus driver. Her bus came and went, but Judy didn't get on at her stop. Her driver noted that she didn't get on that morning, which was unusual. At the time, he figured she had gotten a later start to her day that morning, and several other regular riders corroborated that Judy did not get on her normal bus that day. Judy's parents had no idea anything was amiss until that night when she didn't arrive home at her usual time. They didn't initially panic, they just assumed that she got held up at class or lost track of time in the library. When she missed dinner without calling, her parents were worried. When it was nearing time for bed and she still hadn't returned home, they tried calling friends. When no one said they had seen her, they tried to get some sleep and hoped that when they woke up, she would be in her bed and they would just chastise her for scaring them. The morning came and Judy was still not home, and there was no sign that she had been home at all during the night. The Williamsons made a frantic call to the police and then drove down to the station to file a missing persons report. They told police that they had not seen their daughter since she left for school the morning before. At this point, no one had heard from Judy for nearly 30 hours. Her parents stressed that she was not the type to be out of contact for this long. Police asked if there was a boyfriend that she could have gone off with for a few days, but her parents said no. They also added that there was about $20 of untouched cash in Judy's room, and she probably only had enough cash on her for bus fare and lunch when she left that morning. 
She also didn't mention that she had plans with anyone. As far as her parents were aware, she was going to attend school and then come back home in time for dinner. That was enough for the Albany Police Department, and they immediately launched an investigation to try to piece together the events of the day that Judy disappeared. Almost immediately, witnesses came forward and told police that Judy was waiting near her bus stop, and a man driving a white convertible was idling on the curb speaking with her. Witnesses said that she seemed to know him and got in the car with him, and then the two drove off. The bus driver and the other regular riders corroborated this story, confirming that Judy just wasn't on the bus that morning. Classmates said that Judy did not make it to class on October 29th. A couple of classmates Judy had become friendly with did mention that in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, she occasionally came to school with windswept hair and mentioned that she had gotten a ride with a friend. The investigation so far seemed to tell police that if they could find who drove the white convertible, then they would find Judy. Police were initially hopeful since they managed to narrow down their timeline early on in the investigation. Unfortunately, the investigation stalled out as quickly as it began. By this time, Judy's disappearance had become a massive news story. It was later reported that if a newspaper ran an article with Judy's investigation as the headline, it would sell sometimes 20,000 more copies than another day. With nothing new to report but demand for information high, reporters swarmed the otherwise quiet town of Albany looking for information on Judy, her family, and her personal life. They were looking for any details they could find to turn into a story or a new theory about what happened to Judy. From the time of her disappearance on October 29th until November 8th, police were tight-lipped about the progress of the investigation. That changed when police went public with the white convertible and asked for anyone with any information to please speak to the police. They also revealed that their investigation had uncovered more evidence. On November 1st, a UC Berkeley employee saw someone matching Judy's description arguing with someone in a white convertible near the UC Botanical Gardens. Then, on November 4th, another UC Berkeley employee found several textbooks in a trash can in a parking garage near Dwinnell Hall. When the employee pulled them from the trash can, he saw that they were covered in blood and turned them into the police. Police were able to verify that these books belonged to Judy. They revealed in the press conference that they had sent the books to the FBI so the blood could be tested to see if it was human. The next break in the investigation came just a week later on November 11th, when the mother of an 11-year-old boy brought a bag of belongings her son had in his room into the Albany police station. 11-year-old Ted Myers worked collecting shopping carts and returning them to their respective stores at the El Cerrito Plaza, a shopping center in Albany. While working, he had come across a book bag and a white umbrella on October 29th. He took the items home, and when his mother realized that the umbrella was monogrammed with Judy's name, she immediately took it to the police. The umbrella was broken, and it looked like it had been run over with a car. Later that week, police held another press conference. On November 18th, it was revealed that the FBI tests on the blood found on the books in the parking garage was human. 
It was also revealed that the police were able to identify these books so quickly because a number of items Judy was known to have on her were also found in the trash can. The discovery of the white umbrella at El Cerrito Plaza was also made public at this time. Police also announced that while they did not know what happened to Judy, they had no choice but to suspect that she had been met with foul play. That same day, Albany police were called back to the parking garage at Dwinnell Hall. This time, they were called to the lowest level of the underground lot in an isolated corner of the garage. It was there that a university employee discovered a large dried pool of blood. It appeared to have been there for some time, but when it was fresh, a car had driven through it, leaving a trail going nearly 50 feet towards the exit. The tire tracks left behind a perfect imprint for police to match, but it matched the most common type of tire on the market at the time. The pattern in which the blood pooled was examined extensively. It looked like a body had been dragged from the right passenger side of the car and rested near the back of the car. Blood continued to drip onto the ground near the back of the car for some time before the car then drove through it. The investigative team managed to ascertain that the blood had been there for several weeks, near the time Judy had disappeared. The FBI was called in again to run tests on the blood, and due to the large sample size, they were able to produce a blood type match. The blood type from the pool in the parking garage floor was type A, which was a match to Judy. Since this was 1963, this was the most accurate test available at the time, DNA testing was still some three decades away. The amount of blood found at the scene answered at least one question for investigators. They now knew for certain that they were not going to find Judy alive. Albany police released another statement saying that they believed that Judy was dead and that she had been murdered. They also said that they were fairly certain that she was killed on the day that she disappeared and that she was acquainted with whoever picked her up at the bus stop. This huge break in the case was quickly overshadowed just days after it was announced when then-President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Texas on November 22, 1963. JFK's assassination dominated the national news for months and articles about Judy were knocked off the front page of regional newspapers. Despite the abatement of media coverage, Albany Police Department continued to investigate Judy's disappearance. They interviewed thousands of people and cleared hundreds of involvement. Of the thousands interviewed, 350 of them alone were UC Berkeley students who knew or had classes with Judy. By January 14, 1964, Albany police made another plea for anyone with information to come forward. Despite hundreds of hours of interviews, just two and a half months after Judy disappeared, the case had officially hit a dead end. Local prominent forensic psychiatrist Dr. Walter Rappaport provided his own psychiatric assessment of the perpetrator. Dr. Rappaport consulted as an expert witness in the court system and was also the director of a local state mental hospital. 
He said that the perpetrator was a young male and described him as a lover boy type. He was probably around Judy's age, maybe a couple years older. He also was more likely than not a UC Berkeley student that attended classes with Judy. He and Judy probably had some sort of established friendship and even perhaps dated. Based on what Judy's parents said, she had not dated anyone seriously recently, so whatever relationship they had, if there was one, was just casual. Dr. Rappaport went on to say that this man was a sadist and suffered from, quote, moderate mental derangement, and it was probably not severe enough to catch the attention of those around him. Dr. Rappaport also said that this man was very possessive and quick to anger. He would feel possessive of Judy, and if she were to break up with him or date someone else, he would react negatively and see these actions as an attempt to provoke him. He specifically noted that if this was a situation where Judy and this man had dated and she broke up with him, it would set him off. This quote from the assessment says, The type of person who would fit this description would become psychopathically unbalanced by Judy's resistance to what he believed he could have or what he wanted her to do. In other words, he would feel like Judy was not allowed to break up with him because no one is going to do something like that to him. Finally, he noted that disposing of Judy's belongings in trash cans in various locations was purely to remove evidence from his possession and distance himself from the crime. They were not likely part of some M.O. The revelation that the person who kidnapped Judy might be a student had women on campus worried. They were scared that someone capable of this crime could be blending in with the rest of the student body. They were also scared that Judy could be picked up in broad daylight and no one seemed to be able to identify who she was with, despite being seen by several witnesses. Several female students were quoted in an article about the impact that Judy's disappearance had on the campus community. They said that this case had made them more cautious, but there was not much that they felt they could do to protect themselves, since so much of the case remained unknown. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Occasionally, the case would be brought up when another high-profile case hit the news. Just two weeks after police announced that they had hit a dead end in their investigation, Betty and Carolyn Martin would be murdered and posed post-mortem in their Oakland home. Police and the media theorized that the person responsible for Judy's disappearance may also have something to do with the Martin murders. But that link was quickly ruled out. I covered the Martin murders a few episodes back, and that's where I first mentioned Judy's case. So if you're interested to see how the Martin murder case played out, you can check out that episode. There were also two instances where skeletonized remains were found and seriously believed to be Judy. First was in November of 1964, just a little over a year after Judy disappeared. The skeletonized body was found in the hills of East Oakland. The spot where the body was found was isolated enough that the remains had been undisturbed for some time. This location was less than 10 miles from Judy's home in Albany. Dental record comparison showed that the body in East Oakland was not Judy's. Just a few months later, in late January of 1965, skeletonized remains were found in the hills of San Bernardino. San Bernardino is in Southern California and about a six and a half hour drive away from Albany. Once again, hopes that Judy could finally be laid to rest were dashed when dental records showed that the body in San Bernardino was not a match. Attention to Judy's case never reached the same levels it was at before JFK's assassination. Despite all of the initial interest, once Judy's story fell off the front page, it never returned. Albany police tried to prevent Judy's case from going cold, but no new leads emerged. Judy's case ended up filed away in the back corners of the police department headquarters, collecting dust. Judy's friends and family had no choice but to move on with their new normal and hope that one day they would be able to bring her home. Judy's parents were still grieving the loss of their only child. In an attempt to move on and try and bring some semblance of normalcy to their lives, Clara and Stanley decided to take an extended 10-week vacation across Europe and left on April 1, 1966. The couple told friends and family that they wanted to play their trip by ear once they landed in Brussels, and that they would check in every few days to let them know where they were. This trip was the first vacation they had taken since Judy went missing. On the early morning of April 7th, four men were driving down winding Highway 9 through the Santa Cruz Mountains. They were searching for a turnout to park their car where they could hike down the road in search of redwood burls. Upon seeing an old burned-out car off the side of the road, slightly down a hill, the group decided to pull over. They thought this would give them a good starting point that they could return to since they were hiking off-trail. As soon as they descended down the hill, they ended up in a small clearing. In the clearing, they came across scattered bones. 
they noted that they were maybe only a hundred yards away from the road. The bones appeared very clean and even bleached by the sun, indicating that they had been there for some time. Whoever they belonged to was left there laying face up, and the smaller bones had been scattered across the clearing, most likely by animals. Also found at the scene was tattered, sun-bleached clothing. They found a black sweater and a white blouse with a green and black plaid skirt that had been warped by the elements. They also found a gold wristwatch that matched the one that disappeared with Judy on October 29, 1963. Near the bones was a small paring knife, and in what remained of the sweater, there were multiple slash marks. Although the bones were scattered around, the breastbone remained intact. Visible on the bone were nick marks that were matched to the paring knife. The hikers collected some of the bones and drove them to the nearest police station. They led a team of investigators back to the burned-out car on Highway 9. Police immediately believed that they had found the remains of Judy and sent the skull found at the scene for comparison against her dental records. The positive match to Judy's dental records was made almost immediately. Although they knew that Judy was most likely dead, her parents no longer had to wonder if one day she would come home after all this time. They had their answer. After being missing for nearly 30 months, Judy could finally be laid to rest. Clara and Stanley were only a week into their 10-week vacation when Judy's remains were found. The day the news hit the press that the remains had been positively identified, a story also ran about how Judy's parents had yet to be reached and had no idea that their daughter's body had been found. Albany police were placing calls to all American consuls in Europe to try to track down the couple. A travel agent located in El Cerrito Plaza, the same shopping center where Judy's umbrella was found years before, told reporters that he had sold the Williamson's plane tickets and a rail pass so they could be anywhere. The main investigator on Judy's case also happened to be away that week at his vacation cabin with his family and was unreachable by phone. He wouldn't hear of the discovery until he returned to work. Eventually, contact with the Williamsons was made, and they returned to the United States as soon as they could to collect their daughter's remains. Judy's funeral was held in June of 1966. Investigators determined that Judy's body had been there for a long time, and she was probably left there the same day that she disappeared. Between the stab marks in the sweater and the physical nicks on the breastbone, it was ascertained that Judy had been stabbed at least 14 times with the paring knife found at the scene. Once again, there was a major breakthrough which breathed new life into the case and gave investigators and family hope that Judy's killer would be brought to justice. But just as quickly as the identification was made, the case went cold again. Investigators would dust off the case file every couple of years and re-interview family, friends, and former classmates, but it never led to any breaks. Eventually, the Williamsons decided it was time to retire. They had wanted to remain local in the event that the police had made a break in the case, but after a decade without an answer as to who killed their daughter, 
they sold their Albany home and retired to a remote corner of northeastern California in Shasta County. They lived in relative isolation in the small town that they moved to. Neighbors respected their privacy, telling reporters that they understood why they wanted to keep to themselves. The Williamsons just wanted to live out their retirement without constant reminders of the daughter that they had lost. Revisits to Judy's case grew further and farther between as time went on. By the mid-1970s, nearly a decade had passed since Judy's remains were discovered, and investigators had no lead on who was responsible. Then in late 1977, a man in his early 30s, accompanied by a lawyer, walked into Alameda County District Attorney's Office and asked to make a statement. In his signed affidavit, the man confessed to kidnapping and murdering Judy Williamson and leaving her body off of Highway 9 back in 1963. A month previously, the man, Joseph, had quit his well-paying job and vacated his apartment in Chicago and moved back to his hometown of Albany. He stayed with a friend from high school when he got back into town and told him a disturbing story. He confessed to his friend that he was responsible for killing their former high school classmate, Judy, and he wanted to confess to police. The two spent a month discussing the best way to go about doing that. Joseph hired a lawyer to advise him through the legal process. He had actually been preparing for his confession for a year before he moved back to Albany. He started putting money aside to fund his eventual legal defense and even read up on prison life. The day before he confessed, he sat down with his mother and told her what he had done and what he planned to do next. She would later say that the entire conversation only lasted five minutes. Then he walked into the district attorney's office and signed his confession. Joseph was born and raised in Albany. His father was a local politician and at one point the mayor of Albany. His father passed away in the late 1960s, but before he passed away, he had given Joseph a white convertible. Joseph had known Judy since they attended Albany High School together. In 1963, they were both students at UC Berkeley. They were part of a group of honor students from Albany High School who attended Berkeley together, and the group often socialized outside of classes. When news reached the Williamsons that a former classmate had confessed to Judy's murder, Stanley remarked that he couldn't even picture Joseph and that Judy rarely, if ever, mentioned him. Police said that Joseph was high up on their persons of interest list during the beginning of the investigation, but he was never officially labeled a suspect. In his statement, Joseph recounted the events that police had been unable to piece together. On the morning of October 29, 1963, Joseph was driving his white convertible down San Pablo Avenue in Albany. He spotted Judy walking towards her bus stop and pulled over to offer her a ride. He mentioned that he had done this before, corroborating what classmates had told police about Judith getting rides to school in the weeks leading up to her disappearance. He and Judy drove to UC Berkeley, where he parked his car on the bottom floor of the parking garage near Dwinnell Hall. 
The entire ride, he said he made small talk with her, and the conversation was ordinary and pleasant. Once he parked the car, he claimed he was overcome with thoughts that he wanted to kill Judy. He said he tried to strangle her, but he was unable to. He stopped and said that Judy was shocked and terrified at the sudden attack. Then he pulled the small paring knife that he had in the back seat of his car and held it up to her. He said that she asked him what he was doing and what his father would think of this. Then he attacked Judy, losing count of the number of times that he stabbed her. He then moved her body from the passenger seat to the trunk, leaving the pool of blood that would later be found by investigators. He began disposing of her belongings and left her body off the side of Highway 9 in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Shocked at what he had done, he drove to his uncle's house in Los Angeles. He got a speeding ticket outside of Bakersfield, California, where it was noted by the officer that he found it odd that someone would be on the verge of tears while being written up for speeding. He had his car professionally cleaned and the trunk lining replaced. Then he let the car get impounded in Los Angeles. He was gone for so long that his family grew concerned. When he returned, he was interviewed by police and asked to take a polygraph test, which he refused. In hindsight, Joseph seems like the perfect prime suspect. He knew Judy. He was a current UC Berkeley student. He owned a white convertible and he had a parking pass for the garage where the pool of blood was found. And he left town in the immediate aftermath of Judy's disappearance. In reality, he was never officially interviewed as a suspect. He also said he did not want to take the polygraph test because he had read about their unreliability. Although his father was politically connected, it was noted in a couple articles that he did not interfere with the police investigation. He passed away about 10 years before Joseph confessed. After the murder, Joseph dropped out of UC Berkeley. He enrolled and then graduated from San Francisco State University. After that, he worked in the Bay Area and then moved to Chicago in the early 1970s. According to those who knew him in Chicago, he seemed like a fairly average and normal person. Sometime during his stint in Chicago, Joseph attended the Erhard Seminars training. This was a seminar that was popular in the early 1970s that promoted transforming one's ability to experience living so that the situations one has been trying to change or one has been putting up with clear up just in the process of life itself and brings to the forefront the ideas of transformation, personal responsibility, accountability, and possibility. After attending the seminar, Joseph decided that it was time to confess and take responsibility for killing Judy. He felt that he was living a life of isolation because he avoided confessing to his crime. He spent the next year saving up money for his legal fees and mentally preparing himself for his inevitable prison sentence. Despite signing an affidavit in November of 1977, by December, he had entered a plea of not guilty to a charge of first-degree murder. He was released on $10,000 bond while he awaited trial. Stanley and Clara traveled back to the Bay Area for the trial. Stanley testified about the toll their daughter's disappearance took on his wife and himself. 
He also identified Judy's belongings from the trash can and the scene where her body was discovered. He told the court that despite all the time that had passed, he never stopped looking for Judy or her killer. In April of 1978, after a three-week trial and 15 years after Judy disappeared, a jury of seven women and five men found Joseph guilty. They deadlocked on a 10-2 split on the charge of first-degree murder. To avoid a retrial, Joseph pled guilty to second-degree murder, and he faced a sentence of five years to life in prison. At sentencing, Joseph said that there was no reason or motive behind his crime. He said he simply does not know why he did it. Joseph told investigators that until he turned himself in, he felt socially awkward, and he was afraid of making friends for fear of being considered, quote, a bore or worse. Of his relationships with women, he was quoted saying, Women were a special problem. My relationship with girls was poor. I took a point of view early on in life that girls were inferior or unequal and never viewed them with respect. But he made sure to add that he did not consider himself to be a woman hater. His lawyer asked for a sentence of 20 years probation, saying that the prison Joseph kept himself in for 14 years was punishment enough. The judge replied that criminals don't get to rehabilitate themselves and sentenced him to 10 years to life in prison. He was eligible for parole 40 months after his sentencing, depending on his behavior in prison. I tried to find information on his release, but I was unable to. I assume that he was paroled and blended back into society. As far as I can tell, he has not had further contact with the criminal justice system. Judy's parents were in their 60s at the time of the trial. They returned to their retirement community in Shasta County after the guilty verdict was handed down, with their daughter's killer finally brought to justice. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month or higher level, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages to let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. If you have a case that you would like to see covered, check out our show notes for a link for a Google form where you can submit the case.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.